Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, let's open up God's Word now. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 26 today. As we continue our study here, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new with us, welcome. My name is Dustin Daniels. I'm the pastor teacher here, and uh, glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. If you would like a Bible, we've got them in the back there for you. That's our gift to you. So feel free to stand up, grab one of those, take it home. Um... Let me review as you turn to Matthew chapter 9. Last Sunday, we learned a very, very important lesson, didn't we? We we learned how to lose our religion. Y'all remember that? Religion. There's a lot of definitions of religion. So let me me define the context in in what I'm talking about here. Religion, it's, it's this set of rules It's a set of rituals that people believe they must do to make God happy, right? It's religion. It's this idea of continuing to do something because we've always done it that way. Why do you do X, Y, and Z? I don't know. Mom and dad did it. The church does it. We just keep doing it. Well, religion is we're doing something. We don't know why we're doing it, Uh, but we're going to keep doing it anyway because it's tradition. Um, and the thing about religion and the thing about religious people is that they keep their, their own rules, their own obligations, and they obey those rules and and obligations, but they also inflict their rules on everyone around them. And so we met Larry last week. Remember Larry, the legalist, Larry meets Johnny Christian, new Johnny Christian, and he starts telling Johnny what to do and what, he, uh, and, and what he should and should not do. He starts to should on Johnny. You know, Johnny, this is what you should do, X, Y, and Z. Oh, Johnny, you, can't, you shouldn't do that. Um, and that brought us to key point number one from last week. We said this, religious rituals and routines will always impact your relationship with Jesus. And most of the time, in a negative way. And the reason why is because any religious activity that is, um, it really is meaningless if it's not connected to a true spiritual need. And those spiritual needs, guess what? They're found in a book. It's not Larry's opinion, is it? What's the old joke? There is no first or second opinions in Scripture. So in other words, whenever you divorce the physical activity from the spiritual need, you're going to find yourself carrying this religious burden, guys, that you were never intended to carry. That brings us to key point number two from last week. The gospel cannot be contained through religious rules and rituals. Isn't that good news? Because the gospel is all about a relationship with a person. The one true living God. The commandments in the Old Testament, they were, they were designed to do one thing. And that was to reveal our sinfulness. It was to prove that we're not perfect. Prove that we could not keep all the rules uh, that, that God's justice demands. Because the gospel is about freedom, right? John, Jesus said this in John 8.32. He said, you're going to know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Where's the truth found? In Scripture, right? It's the Bible. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, it is for freedom that Jesus Christ set you free. So does a criminal who gets out of prison, does he, does he want to go back into prison after parole? Not if he's saying he doesn't. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, make sure that you stay free. 
Don't get tied up into all these, the, 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 the laws and the rituals, right? Don't get tied up into the slavery of religion. Here's the problem with freedom. Here's the problem with what the gospel does in our lives, is that we don't know how to act when the Lord sets us free. We don't know how to act. Because legalism, it really is easy for a short period of time. Just tell me what to do and I can do it for a short period of time. The problem is that we can't keep doing it for the rest of our lives. We try to, um, and especially if we were in, uh, raised inside that legalistic environment, um, it's really hard to break that habit. Jesus showed us that we can't keep all those rules. He showed that to us on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but if we keep trying to keep all of those rules and rituals and regulations, it's like we're, we're pushing this giant boulder up Mount Sinai. And sooner or later, that thing's going to roll right back on top of us, isn't it? Brings us to key point number three from last week. Uh, today's church has no more authority to issue the rules and regulations than the Pharisees did. So a new study came out, and it gave a lot of reasons why people don't come to church. I found it interesting that one of the reasons not mentioned was legalism. I found that interesting because people stopped coming to church, especially here in the Verde Valley, because the churches act the same way the scribes and the Pharisees do. They put a burden on people, right? Pastors are abusing people. They're using their pulpits to beat people down into submission rather than raising them up with the word of God. We've got too many pulpits and not enough God-fearing pastors to fill them. And guess what happens? Guess what the churches do? They, they hire unqualified pulpiteers who run the church like a, a country club or a local community center. And they think, well, you know what? As long as I got people in the seats, as long as the music's good, oh yeah, as long as they're donating, everything's going to be fine. That's not how it works, is it? So anyway, I, I hope last week, guys, I, I hope that we learn that the cure for legalism is the gospel. It is the gospel. So it's, it's in the gospel that we learn that God loves us without conditions. That's hard to grasp. It's hard to realize that God loves me on my worst day. Because we, we tend to love one another based on conditions. I, I, I tend to treat people a little bit differently if they're nice to me versus if they're screaming at me. <laughs> Call me crazy. That's not how God looks at this, though. God chose us, He called us, and He accepts us, not because of our performance, but because of the person and the performance of Jesus Christ. Nothing impresses God more than His Son, Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's fun when you, as I go through this and review, um, I, I came up with a new key point that I didn't get to last week but I'll share it with you here. It's God's promise plus Jesus's performance equals grace. Isn't that good? Well, today we're going to see Jesus's grace in action, and we're going to meet two new characters here. The first person is a wealthy, educated, and well-known man in the Jewish community. The second is a woman, a Gentile outcast, and as different as these two people are, we're going to learn some striking similarities here. Similarities not only between them, but similarities between us. So what are they? Why do you care? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Just as we raised our voice to sing those songs uh, to the Lord well, let's raise our voice here and read scripture together as a church, starting in verse 18. As he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, my, 
just die. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached him from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Then the news of this spread throughout the whole area. Guys, these are the very words uh, from God this morning. They are authoritative, they are inerrant, they are inspired, and they are infallible, meaning they never fail. The psalmist writes, Lord, do not abandon me. My God, do not be far from me. Hurry to help me, my Lord and my salvation. Now, Father, what a great passage to start off understanding that you are not far from us this morning. Many of us have things in the back of our minds, and we call on you to hurry and to help us, to guide us and lead us and direct us. And we pray that you would do that through your text this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, guys. All right, let's take a deeper look here at verse 18. So as he, that's Jesus, as Jesus was telling John's disciples these things. So remember the conversation from last week, these things. He was talking about fasting and kind of the bigger picture there was religion and, and man-made religious rules. And then suddenly one of the leaders came up, knelt down before Jesus saying, my daughter just died. But Jesus, if you come and you lay your hands on her, she will live. So let me give you the big picture first here. Um, these two stories are also in Mark and Luke's Gospels as well. Matthew, once again, gives us the, the briefest account. He summarizes the whole thing. So we're going to look at Mark and Luke as well. Verse 18, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before Jesus. So who is this man? Who's this leader? Luke tells us, he says this man, his name is Jairus. He's a leader of the local synagogue. Jairus, his name, and this is so fun, it means God enlightens. Isn't that cool? God enlightens. He gets enlightened at the end of this story, let me tell you. So Luke provides his name and his occupation. That's very, very important to know. The synagogue in the first century, it's very similar to the local church today. Uh, each synagogue back then had 10 elders, 10 leaders. And of those 10, one was elected as the, as the ruler of the synagogue. So uh, he was very important. Um, not only is, is Jairus in charge of the synagogue, but he is also a person that, that settles civic disputes between Jewish matters. Um, so he was a man of power. He had prosperity. He's a wealthy man. He's a very influential man. Uh, so Jairus is this man. He is the highest ranking religious official in Capernaum. Now Jairus, he may have been a Pharisee himself. So Matthew paints the scene here, right? We've got Jesus answering questions about fasting from the disciples of John the baptizer. Suddenly, Jairus comes into the picture. Now, everybody knows Jairus. So, so people probably think, well, he's got a question for Jesus too. But Jairus does something very odd here. Look at verse 18. Suddenly, one of the leaders came and knelt before Jesus. Both Mark and Luke say that Jairus fell at Jesus' feet. Your translation may say worship. Jairus worshiped. Well, I don't know about you, but whenever someone runs up 
and falls at someone else's feet, that's going to stop the current conversation. That's what happens. Jairus just barges on in. Verse 18, he says, my daughter just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she's going to live. Now, Mark's gospel tells us that she's 12 years old. Now, this really is an amazing statement from Jairus. Uh, In it, we see two things. Number one, Jairus had a deep need, right? His daughter just died. Secondly, we see his faith in Jesus. Now, this is where it gets a little odd because you have to ask yourself, wait a second, where did this faith come from? Because Jairus is the epitome of the Pharisaic religious establishment, right? He's the poster boy for religion. He is Larry the legalist. That's who, the, that's who Jairus is. So why didn't Jairus, why did, doesn't he go to the Jewish doctors in town? Why isn't Jairus at the synagogue receiving emotional and, and, and spiritual support from the other elders? Well, you can bet that Jairus knew about Jesus' healings, the miracles, and even the, the forgiveness of sins uh, from Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus hasn't performed a resurrection miracle yet. Regardless, he says in verse 18, but Jesus, if you come and lay your hand on her, she's going to live. So Luke says that Jairus pleaded with Jesus. He's pleading. He's begging. So it's not very often that you see a well-respected man with this guy's credentials on his face begging for help. But that's exactly what Jairus is doing here. It's almost as if Jairus said this. Jesus, my my daughter's died. She's dead. But I've got faith in you. I've heard the stories. I've listened to you preach. I may not know exactly who you are. I I don't know if you're a prophet. I don't know if you're the Messiah. I, I don't know yet. But what I do know is that God is with you. I do know that. You remind me of of Elijah. You remind me of Elisha. They raised the dead, and and I think that you could raise my daughter as well. See, Jairus was desperate. He's emotional, but at the same time, he's faithful. He's got nowhere else to turn but to Jesus. Now, what were Jairus' religious friends thinking? as Jairus is on his face begging for help. Hey, 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 has Jairus gone crazy? What's he doing? Am I really seeing Jairus groveling at the feet of this uneducated, unordained preacher from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? What is going on with Jairus? Has he lost his mind? (laughs) Yeah, the answer is yes. I mean, what are his religious friends going to do at this moment? What rule could Jairus keep to bring his daughter back to life? What ritual could he perform to make God happy? The answer is none, of course. Why is that? Key point number one, because death changes everything, doesn't it? Death changes everything. Sooner or later, we all have to come to terms that we're going to die. We have to come to terms that those around us are going to die. See, if we never think about death, we will absolutely freak out when tragedy strikes. And make no doubt about it, Jairus is freaking out. He is freaking out. So how does Jesus respond to Jairus's, and this is an outrageous request of of a resurrection. Verse 19, Jesus and his disciples got up and they started to follow Jairus. It's unbelievable. Uh, Notice here that Jesus didn't rebuke Jairus for his motive. He has a motive. He wants something from Jesus, no doubt. Jesus didn't say, oh, Jairus, you have little faith. He didn't say that. For many of us today, desperation was a prime factor in our testimony, right? 
I know it was for me. Please know that there's no shame in asking for help. That's the whole point of, of the gospel, asking for help. We, we can't do this on our own. Someone once said that the theme song in hell is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. <laughs> I guess if there were music in hell, that might be a good one. But there is no music in hell, guys. There's only the souls of those who do not believe and God's justice and wrath. Mark goes on to say this, Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding Jesus, crowding around him. So of course they followed Jesus, right? Who doesn't want to see this? Jesus is going to raise somebody from the dead. Okay, well, there is a problem here. The crowd of people following, they're making this trip take longer than it should. Not only that, look what happens next in verse 20. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of Jesus' robe. So who is this woman? We don't know. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they don't say. If they did, they didn't include it in the Gospels. All we know is that this woman has suffered from a certain bleeding condition for 12 years. We don't know the exact cause of the bleeding. We can take an educated guess that she was suffering from excessive menstrual bleeding. Her condition renders her barren because of her constant hemorrhaging. For us today, it's, it's hard for us to understand the impact of what this woman went through. Whatever the cause, the bleeding has weakened her, hasn't it? She would have been anemic. She would have been pale. She would have had low energy. She was susceptible to other diseases as well. Now, there is a debate on whether this woman is a Jew or a non-Jew, called a Gentile, right? If she's a Jew, her continual bleeding made her ceremonially unclean. And Leviticus chapter 15 outlines all of those details. Basically, long story short, this means that she couldn't go to the synagogue. She couldn't go to church. Now, back then, that was a big deal because everything was in, intertwined with the synagogue and with the temple. Um, if she did go to, to church, she would contaminate everyone that she touched, meaning that they were now unclean as well. Her own family couldn't be around her. She couldn't touch her husband. Um, if she got married... Before the illness, she is certainly single now if she was single when the bleeding started. She's got no way to make a living except to beg. So in other words, this woman has lived nearly in complete isolation for the past 12 years if she's a Jew. But I don't think she's a Jew. I think she's a Gentile. She reminds me of the Syrophoenician woman uh, this Gentile woman who asked Jesus for the crumbs of bread from the Jews' table. Remember her? Here's why. Here's why I think she's a Gentile. Let's take a closer look. Luke says that this woman could find no cure. Mark says that she suffered greatly at the hands of many doctors. And not only that, she spent all of her money on the docs as well. Uh, so this woman goes from doctor to doctor and she's suffering physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Doctors in the first century were primarily pagan. Dr. Luke, our gospel writer, that's an exception to the rule. Secondly, look how she approaches Jesus in verse 20. She approached him from behind. Mark's gospel says this, she had heard she had heard about Jesus. She's not familiar with Jesus. She, she's heard about him, so she came up from behind, through the crowd, and then she touched his robe. So she comes up behind Jesus. Why does she do that? Because she's an outsider. She's coming before Jesus like the Syrophoenician woman. And by the way, that Syrophoenician woman called herself a dog. Remember? This woman's not Jewish, but she is so desperate that she cut in line. She comes through the back door. She's wanting to be unnoticed. 
But how do most Jewish people approach Jesus? If you're Jewish, you come to Jesus like Jairus because they're in the family, right? If you're Jewish, you come boldly before Jesus like the leper that Jesus healed in Matthew 8. If you're Jewish, you bring four friends to cut a hole in the ceiling to get your buddy down in front of Jesus. That's how you come to Jesus if you're Jewish. But she doesn't do that. Here's another reason I think she's a Gentile. Look at verse 21. She says to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. So in Greek, verse 21, it conveys this eye of repetition. She kept saying this verse like a chant. If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. It's an incantation. So what's that tell us about her faith? It tells us, right, she's, her faith is, is filled with all sorts of, of pagan superstition. This woman does not have great faith. This woman's faith seems desperate, and she is confused. She thinks that Jesus' clothes have power. So her plan is that she's going to sneak up from behind. Jesus can't see her. She's going to get healed, and then she's going to bolt. That's her plan. She thinks, if I can just touch him, right? Which is both right and wrong. I mean, she's wrong in the sense that Jesus can heal. He doesn't have to touch anybody to do that. But she's right in that she has to make contact with Jesus because Jesus is a person. This is about a relationship. But because of the crowd, she also comes in contact. She's touching dozens of people to get behind Jesus. So if she's Jewish, she's making everybody unclean as she touches them, which means that everybody has to go through a ritual. They're not going to be happy about that. But evidently, she doesn't give a rip who she touches and who she doesn't. Luke says this, coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. On the end of Jesus' robe were tassels. According to biblical requirements, Jewish men, they were to make four blue tassels, and they were to put them on the four corners of their robe. Uh, the tassels were woven. They were created in a way that reflects God's word. So whenever a Jew puts his clothes on and takes them off, he would see those tassels, and he would be reminded about the word of God. And I love that because the Apostle Paul says we are to put on righteousness. It was a reminder. We do the same thing with our crosses. Right? Whether it's a ring, whether it's a necklace, um, it's a reminder of, of God's grace in our life. Verse 21, she says to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'm going to be made well. If I can do that. I mean, this statement really is amazing because at this moment, guys, this woman forsakes her faith in the human doctors. She abandons her pagan gods and she turns, look at the picture here. She turns to grab the word of God represented in that tassel. Isn't that cool? Her reach is a representation of her trusting in God and not those pagan practices, not these myths and not these superstitions. I love this imagery. She grabs the word of God wearing the word of God. How cool is that? And guess what happens? Mark says immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. So what's she thinking when she grabs a hold of that tassel? Ah! I'm healed. I know it. What's Jesus thinking? Whoa, what just happened? What just happened? Mark fills in the gap. He says, Jesus realized at once the healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and he asked, hey, who touched my robe? His disciples said, Jesus, look at the crowd. Everybody's touching you, pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? Verse 32, Jesus kept on looking around to see who'd done it. Luke says this, 
Uh, Who touched me, Jesus asked. And everybody's denying it. I didn't touch you. Peter said, Master, the whole crowd is pressing up against you. (laughs) This is so funny because if there was ever an incident where the disciples are truly irritated with Jesus, it's at this moment. In other words, Peter's like, Jesus, who, who hasn't touched you? Everybody's touching you. Come on, man. We got to get going. We got things to do. We got people to see. You got a girl to resurrect. We got we to stay on schedule, baby. Verse 46, Jesus said, nope. Nope. Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt the healing power go out from me. So picture the scene here. Jesus stops. <laughs> he stops. He stops walking. And he's not moving until he finds out who touched him. Jairus, I imagine, is losing his mind right now. I mean, what's Jairus thinking? Uh -uh, No, 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 no. We don't have time for this. Wait a second, lady. You can't just barge in like that. You can't cut in line. Me first. My daughter's dead. Let's get going. Wouldn't you feel the same way? Jairus probably resented that woman. But see, Jairus' real problem is not the woman at this moment. The real problem is with his own heart. Because the the woman being ministered to, this is a divine disruption to Jairus' life. In other words, Jairus doesn't need Jesus to walk faster. Jairus needs more faith. He needs more faith. Brings us to key point number two. Interruptions are divine opportunities to build our faith. Interruptions to our schedule, interruptions to our life, those are divine opportunities to build faith. This is how we build spiritual muscle. Luke continues here. He says, when the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and she fell to her knees In front of Jesus. This is amazing. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and why she had been immediately healed. So she comes in fear and in trembling because she is a Gentile. She is not in the family of God. She's not a daughter of the synagogue like Jairus' daughter. She is not a privileged woman. So can you hear the panic in this woman's voice? Can you hear the pain as she's crying and weeping and she's telling Jesus this story? She's been sick as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. Twelve years. So Jesus takes the time for everyone to hear this story. And when you really think about it, it was God the Father who chose and healed this woman who just happened to work through Jesus But Jesus recognizes what's going on, of course, and he makes this woman give a public witness. He wants to glorify God the Father. Why? Because she is a Gentile woman in the presence of Jews. The unchosen versus the chosen. And salvation has come to the Gentiles to make all the Jews jealous. And by the way, if you're, if you're, a, if you're not a Jew in here this morning... We are all Gentiles, right? So in other words, we get Jesus on the rebounds because the Jews didn't want him. But Jesus makes her tell her story. And that that reveals something very special because nobody gets privacy when it comes to salvation. Same is for us. Salvation is a personal matter, absolutely, but it's not private. That's why baptism is a celebration. That's why we, you, you do that in front of other people. It's a public testimony of what God's done in your life, in your heart. Um, it's a public witness. Remember the Exodus? Where did, where did the Israelites put the lamb's blood as the angel of death uh, would pass over? Did, did they put the blood underneath the welcome mat? No. They put it on the front door, didn't they? 
They smeared that lamb's blood on the front door. Essentially, they made a cross. So their faith wasn't private. Keep this in mind too, Jesus didn't die in private. He was crucified on the main road for all the world to see. So believers don't get saved privately, nor are unbelievers judged privately. And by the way, hell is not a a private place either. So after this woman gets healed, she shares her testimony. Jesus now turns to her in verse 22, and he says, have courage, daughter. He calls her daughter. Right? He, he didn't say, look, lady, I've got to get to Jairus' daughter. I've got to get her resurrected because, you know, Jairus is such an outstanding godly man. If I do this correctly, we may have a revival on our hands. He didn't say that. He says, daughter, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Have courage. So if God calls her daughter, what's that mean? It means she's in the family, right? She has been born again. Verse 22 continues, he says, your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. Now, time out. How in the world did her faith save her? Her faith is not only imperfect like like us, but man, hers was really messed up, wasn't it? Her faith was a mixture of all sorts of pagan superstition. I mean, if she lived today, she'd be living in Sedona. She didn't keep the Mosaic law. She didn't even know who Moses is. So even though her her faith was filled with superstition, and even though it was imperfect, her faith was still childlike. She truly believed that Jesus could heal her. And she was right. So what's Jesus showing us here? Well, the good news is that you don't have to have all of your theological ducks in a row to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus just as you are. Now, let's look at verse 22 again, because this is confusing. What's really going on with her faith? Why would Jesus say, your faith has saved you? So let me ask you a couple questions. Did this woman have some type of inherent, supernatural, pagan power that was exploited when she touched Jesus' robe? Did her little chant work? See, the prosperity preachers, they're going to point to this passage and they're going to say, see, all you have to do is have a little faith. All you have to do is just have the right amount of faith and you can name it and claim it, baby. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. See, the answer to our question, it lies in that word saved. The verb in Greek is sozo. And it means... you. To either to save physically or spiritually. So the context of the story determines its meaning. So let me give you an example here. Um, In Luke's gospel, we we read about Jesus healing 10 lepers. Luke 17, 11. As Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, 10 men with leprosy stood at a distance. And what they're doing is they're crying out, Jesus... Have mercy on us. So he looked at them and he said, All right, guys, I'll have mercy on you. Go show yourselves to the priest. Go walk to Jerusalem, which is a couple days journey. And as they walked, look at, the, look at the words here. They were cleansed of their leprosy. So in other words, Jesus healed them physically as they walked to the temple. Verse 15, one of them, when he saw that he was healed... He was healed physically. He came back to Jesus and he shouted, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. He was a Gentile. A Samaritan is not only a non-Jew, a Gentile, but a Samaritan. The Jews hated these guys. They were were half-breed Jews. Verse 17, Jesus asked the man, he said, well, didn't I heal 10 men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? So there must have been Jews and Gentiles together in the 10. 
And then verse 19, look at this. As Jesus said to the man, stand up and go, your faith has healed you. Jesus says the same exact thing to the leper as he did to the woman in our story today. He says, your faith has healed, it has saved you. Jesus uses that Greek verb, sozo. So it's one thing to be cleansed physically, healed physically, right? As the, as the woman and the leper, it's entirely different here to be healed spiritually. So in other words, there's a cleansing of the 10 lepers. There's only a saving of one. And this is where our prosperity preacher friends get it wrong. Jesus took this woman's inadequate, superficial, pagan faith and first healed her physically and then saved her soul just like he did with the leper. So key point number three, faith itself does not do the healing. God does. Faith itself does not do the healing. God does. She wasn't healed by her faith, guys. She was healed by the sovereignty of Almighty God, just like everybody else. She believed the most famous verse in the world before the Apostle John penned it. Look at this. God loved the world in this way. How so? That he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who what? Believes in him. Not going to perish, but have eternal life. She believed that. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, look at this, you will be saved. Guess what verb that is? Sozo. Huh. One be- he, goes, he continues, one believes with the heart resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. The root word, sozo. Verse 11 continues, for the scripture says everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. This is is fascinating since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. We could say Jew and Gentile there. Why? Because the same Lord of all richly blesses all those who call on him. And then verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Sozo saved spiritually. And that's what she did. Because we don't have the capacity in ourselves to bring about physical or spiritual healing. We don't have that inherent capacity, do we? Only God does. See, one thing that the prosperity preachers miss when they come to a passage like this is that Jesus healed many people physically. He physically healed people without faith. Jairus' daughter would be exhibit A, right? She doesn't have any faith. She's dead. She can't have any faith. So after all this drama, Jesus and the crowd, they start walking around, walking towards uh, Jairus' home. And who knows how long that, that little episode delayed everything. So verse 23, Jesus came to the leader's house, He saw the flute players and a a crowd lamenting loudly. So it's all the racket. Is this some kind of party? Nope, this is a Jewish funeral. In our culture, we wear black, we whisper. Um, Not the first century Jews. What they would do to express their grief is they would hire professional mourners to weep and cry. They would hire professional musicians to to make all this noise. Gentlemen, notice this. Women were hired. They were paid to cry. Don't you find that interesting? They were paid to cry. Anyway, they show up at Jairus' house. Verse 24, Jesus says, leave. Everybody get out. Get out. The girl's not dead. She's asleep. Everybody laughs at him. Everybody's been laughing at Jesus, mocking Jesus, scorning Jesus ever since. He says that she's asleep. This implies that her death is not permanent. And then verses 25 and 26, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the news of this spread throughout 
the whole area. So at this point, I don't think we're not, you know, we're not surprised at all that Jesus resurrected this little girl. The Old Testament prophets predicted that the Messiah would be able to resurrect people from the dead. Jesus did exactly that. The good news is that he'll do that for you too. That is if you believe. I find it interesting here that Jairus and this woman, two completely and totally opposite people, they meet at the feet of Jesus. Jairus was a leading Jewish man. She was an anonymous, poor, and diseased woman. Jairus was a synagogue leader. She worshipped man-made pagan idols. Jairus' daughter had been healthy for 12 years, and the woman had been sick for 12 years. And as diverse as these two people are, they've got several things in common. First, they come to Jesus because they're desperate. They realize they can't fix their problems on their own. So they humbled themselves. And secondly, their faith was imperfect. It was imperfect, but it was real. I've titled this sermon, Death, the Eventual Enemy. And I did that for a reason, because most of us, we don't like to think about death, let alone talk about it. Jairus, he probably, he probably didn't think much about death until his 12-year-old daughter died. On the other hand, I think this woman suffering for 12 years probably thought about death a lot. She was sick. She was probably depressed. The world that we live in, the culture we live in, we want to escape death, right? We do everything we can. But who escapes death? This 12-year-old girl would grow up to die once again. As far as I know, the mortality rate holds steady at 100%. Newsflash, you're going to die. Heard it here first. In, in all seriousness, guys, I hope that this week that you would think about your death. I hope you have your house in order when it comes to life insurance, when it comes to things like funeral arrangements. I pray that you don't leave your, your family guessing what to do, and you, you don't leave your family financially burdened either. I want to close by introducing you to a, a, a new term. It's a Latin term. It's called memento mori. Memento mori. And it, it means remember death. Remember that you must die. The monks in certain monastic communities, what they would do is they would, they would take a shovel and scoop one shovel full of dirt a day and they would start to dig their own graves. Why would they do that? Memento mori. It's, it's, a, it's a reminder, we're not here forever. Why is it a good practice to remember death? Because you will only live your life properly unless you realize death's reality. See, if you think all, that this is all there is, if, that, if you think that when you die, you just go into the ground and your body rots and that's the end, well, you're going to live your life entirely different than someone who knows that this life is but a vapor. Let me ask you this. Is everything that you love, is it on this side of death? Is everything that you love here and now, is it in this world? Are you afraid of death? If you're a Christian, there's, there's no need to fear death. Now, I'm with you. I, I'm not really excited about the process of dying, but there's no fear of death. The Apostle Paul says, oh, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? He goes on to tell the Philippian church to live as Christ. Listen to this. 
to die is gain. The psalmist writes this. Write this one down. Circle, highlight this one in your, in your Bible for this week. Psalm 42.2. I thirst for God, the living God. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. When can I go stand or appear before him? It's interesting how the psalmist wants to stand before God or appear before God. There's a longing in our lives to see Jesus face to face. Memento mori. Remember death. It's a really good time to do some business with God this week, I think, to consider What's going to happen when the Lord calls you home? Do we have all of our ducks in a row for our family? Are we really ready to meet Jesus face to face? Dear friends, I hope so. Because this world that we live in is a whole lot closer to hell than it is to heaven. This is just the appetizer. We have no idea what's in front of us. We have no idea how we're going to respond, how we're going to live to be with our Lord. Father in heaven, I do pray that no matter where we are uh, with you on this subject of death, that we realize that this, this life that you've given to us is a vapor. It is so short compared to eternity. Lord, show us what we need to do to prepare for that day, not only practically, but spiritually. Continue to draw us closer to you so we're not afraid of death. That we can, as the psalmist says, that we thirst for God, that we want to be with you. When, when can I stand before you? And for those of us who don't know you, Lord God, may we do some business with you this week. And why? Why we don't believe in the eternal consequences that lay ahead. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.